Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. Andy, I was so disappointed. Uh, but I, you know, I <laughs> went through the notes and I picked my YouTube trailer. Man, was I bummed. I, because apparently I picked Die Hard with a Vengeance trailer and did not read, in fact, that that was a fan cut of the trailer. 
Right. But it was better than the, <laughs> than the actual cut. Yes, it, it was. was much better. Yes, it was. <laughs> this was a, a credit to Baronide, uh, who made this uh, fan trailer in 2012 uh, for Die Hard with a Vengeance, and it's in the show notes. If you want to check it out, it's a better trailer. It's slower. It's more patient. Uh, it doesn't give away as much. Uh, generally, it's a, it's a trailer that made me want to see the movie. The trailer that we got, uh, it was still not bad. Of the three... I'd say it's probably the best. Really? Even though hmm. there are some glaring challenges. What? I, no, I, I'm lying about that. I think the Die Hard, the the original Die Hard, was probably better. What I what I really enjoyed about the fan cut is that it really has a stronger uh, and better build, or kind of the setup for the whole Simon Says yes. element of the story. And what the um, the actual trailer really kind of leaves by the wayside is that element of the story. It really just focuses yeah. on it's another diehard movie and now we're driving around the city, you know, and it's, it just, it feels uh, very much just like a modern trailer uh, action trailer where, you know, it leaves a lot of the story uh, by the wayside and focuses on big action moments. A lot of the funny lines that we get over and over, uh, you know, just, that's kind of the direction that they went with the American trailer. And I was really disappointed that they actually show the big boat explosion in the uh, in the trailer. I don't mind seeing the close-up of, of the two guys getting thrown off of it with the explosion behind them. But, I mean, it shows that, like, the, the cut, like, the, to the wide shot of the, you know, the boat in the, in the lake as it's... Uh, getting yeah demolished yeah. so uh, they, they showed quite a bit I, they did but i do think they they did a I, I think you're giving it less credit than maybe it deserves in in regard to building the the relationship between mclean and zeus and simon i you know they talk about they build the revenge plot uh, which i think is actually unfortunate uh that to me more than the boat the big effects that's kind of the biggest spoiler ever Right. I mean, they don't tell you what it is, but they do show you a slightly German, uh, you know, sort of Western European character who looks familiar, sure sounds familiar. And then they cut to the revenge line in the trailer guy voice and they show you the the psychologist saying, you know, he wants to toy with you and pound on you and kill you. (laughs) And that I think is really disappointing. Like that's that's why we show up for this movie ultimately. And they're, you know. Whatever you think of that whole plot element. What you say is just it's another diehard in New York City actually is a very appealing thing for me. So when I see that, I'm thinking, oh, finally, we're not on a vehicle. This is fantastic. Let's see. What can you do? I'm in. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. In the hands of a mastermind of terror. I want to play a game with Lieutenant McLean. What kind of game? Simon Says. The path to revenge leads straight to John McLean. If we don't do what this guy says, he's going to blow up another public place. Why me? What does he got to do with me? I have no idea. He just said it had to be you. It's nice to be needed. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, Mick Tiernan's back, taking John McClane on a tour of New York City in Die Hard with a Vengeance. 
Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or Spotify, and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you enjoy the show and are interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back-channel conversations on Slack and gain access to our members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. This weekend, we're going to be doing our lists in uh, in honor of this film. We're going to be putting lists together of our favorite films with late entrances for the antagonists. So it should be fun. <laughs> Good luck with that, everybody. <laughs> Just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. Are you aiming for these people? No. Well, maybe that mime. He wants you to- I like this movie more than other people do. Probably more than you, given your silence. No, I, it's it that that just seems like an interesting uh, way to kick it off because my my recollection when this movie came out is it was largely regarded as as a better sequel to Die Hard than the second one. Second one was. Is that not your rec- recollection? Do you feel like uh, it's that, that diminished is my over recollection? Time? That is absolutely my recollection. But why is it that when I hear people talking about it today, they they talk about it in this sort of diminutive uh, uh, that it's uh, it's just not it doesn't hold up. It's not as good a movie. Uh, it's it's silly. It's too on the nose. It's I mean, there's any number of things. The, the we don't like Hans Gruber. We think the whole story shoehorned into a diehard story is too much. Like it doesn't doesn't fit John McClane. I I don't see it. I don't see it. I had a hell of a good time at this movie. Over time, I have grown some frustrations with the film. I think it has an incredibly strong uh, start. I think the first act is great. Um, and then I feel like it starts to devolve a little bit um, in the latter half of the film. And definitely by the time we get to the um, the climax, I feel like it's kind of going off the rails a little bit. There are some pieces uh, right in that sort of second, third act, uh, deep second, early third act that that I do have some trouble with, but they're largely effects problems. Uh, there are some weird challenges of physics that I think they they write off to, you know, Hollywood. Uh, but it, it got me thinking about this. I was in researching this. I watched his video of, of um, McTiernan, and he's talking very seriously to the camera. And I'm sure he was asked a question that has been um, that was cut out of his response. Uh, but it got him to say uh, this when speaking about filmmaking, his regard to filmmaking and, and this message that he's carried throughout his career. For the time you're working, it's your effing medium. Have the courage to do it and define it as you will. And and he goes on to explain that uh, the rules of filmmaking, when you're the director, when you're the cinematographer, when you're working the special effects, the rules of filmmaking are uh, intrinsic to your film, and that you should have the uh, you know have the uh, the guts to define those rules, to define them ar- around your film. And I think what he's, I, I think you sort of see that here. This film makes some choices that uh, are, are kind of daffy. Uh, I'm thinking specifically about the you know John McClane erupting from the the tunnel on the geyser of of water, which I. I it stops me in my tracks every time it's so ridiculous. But I don't think it was ridiculous when I saw it the first time. I think it lived up to, um, you know, to what McTiernan was trying to 
to do and say and the kind of fun he was having and certainly screenwriter Hensley was having. Well, to me, it felt like um, they were throwing in Rennie Harlan bits of, of, that, that is of, a di- great of the Die yeah. Hard world. Yeah. Um, that kind of, uh, you know, it had already gone down that uh, road with some more of the the crazy stuff happening in the second one. And it's like, you know, Hensley uh, would write some action in that I think a lot of people felt didn't work very well. I think that's a little bit ridiculous, but it's it's a diehard movie and I guess for me I I kind of blow a lot of those sorts of things off. Um even though I think that is possibly one of the most ridiculous things in any of the diehard films. Yeah. It's it's pretty silly. Uh, it's also and, ridiculous in Looney Tunes. It, yeah. So, right. You know. The, it's funny. I find myself being uh, taking much more of the Andy Nelson route when watching this particular movie. Things that I was was not able to forgive in Die Hard Two, I am much more easy to to forgive in Die Hard Three. I, I think because I am so deeply satisfied with the Simon Says narrative, I really enjoy that. Well, and that's I think such a great um, element that we get in this story is this whole setup of this Simon Says game. And that's, again, going back to um, uh, both of the first uh, two films that we've talked about, they all came from different properties. And each of those properties were adapted into the Die Hard franchise, including this one. I mean, this came from this Simon Says script that Hensley had written as a spec script until you find out basically that it's um, Hans Gruber's brother uh, going after McLean for revenge. It's pretty much the, the original script that, that he did done. And then it kind of uh, goes back and forth with, a, with a lot of changes and stuff. But I think um, I, I'd be really curious to see how that script would have ended up unfolding. I think what he said, is it really just kind of um, the cops just constantly trying to get ahead of him so that he doesn't blow something else up. But I think what it allowed for the uh, studio to get is something that felt original in a franchise. It didn't feel like just a retread. And that's what they were very afraid of with sequels, um, because sequels so often would fall into the retread camp. And so by taking the script and, and fitting it in, um, they found some way to do something more original, and it really works. And that's why I think that the first uh, 45 minutes or so, or first hour, really, I think is just incredibly, incredibly strong film. I actually buy the entire heist concept, too, even though I'm already, you know, sort of giving up kind of, again, rules of physics and and what it would take to to drill into uh, the vault. Um, I, I'm still buying it all the way in. I, I actually think it's a really fun um, uh, approach, and I think it's a it's a fun approach to a heist. It's a fun approach to the um, you know to the the team of bad guys. Uh, and and I generally uh, I'm I'm trucking right along with it. Um, so I, I I can forgive a lot of the stuff in the third act. Um, yeah, a lot of the stuff in the third act uh, as a result of of strong first and second acts. There there are some other interesting things to talk about though. And the first one I I really want your perspective on is John McClane as a character. Um, we start off with John. He's hungover. He's separated from Holly, and he is not in a good way. Uh, it sort of sets him up to be 
just more of the same, the jerk that we talked about in the last movie. Why don't I feel that way uh, with him in this movie? Why don't I feel like he is just living up to the low bar that he set in Die Hard 2? I don't know. I think because... Um, this time he is, uh, he does get, uh, saddled with a partner for the duration of the film. And I think because of the, uh, dynamics that McLean and Zeus Carver, played by Samuel L. Jackson, because their relationship, um, we get to kind of watch it form and grow over the course of the film. I, I think that allows us a better in with McLean where he's not feeling like he's doing everything on his own and, and everybody's against him. I, I think that's exactly it. And in terms of portrayal of character, uh, Zeus is, you know, just as much as John wakes up hating the world, Zeus hates the world for different reasons, but they both are in a place of, of just hating the world and hating what's going on in the world and sort of hating their place in it and hating that they have to always live on the defense. And uh, I, I think that parallel is really nice. I don't know that... This would be the same movie if it if the buddy wasn't Sam Jackson. Like I, I feel like they are a particularly strong duo on screen, and their angst uh, is a good sort of yin and yang for one another. Well, not to mention, I think another reason that it works so well is while they both are coming from kind of places where they kind of hate the world, intrinsically they both are good people trying to do the right thing. And I think that is a, a core element that we get uh, right out of the gate with both characters. Um, you know, McLean is is risking his life essentially to to uh, you know do this insane thing of standing in in Harlem with this uh, this uh, sandwich board that just says horrible things. And then we have Carver, who um, not only do we have that little bit setting up uh, his bit with his what are they nephews, I believe. Right. Where he's he's kind of you know teaching them the rope so to speak you know how to be better citizens how to you know they got to go to school and he's got that great little back and forth with them that I like so much it's a great save the cat moment at the beginning where we really like him not to mention then he is the one who goes out and saves McLean as much as he might uh, not like him because of what his sign says I think that's a really interesting place to start with these two characters and then go from there. What do you think about how the film handles uh, the the race card, right? It, it's, it's pretty loud. It very much is. And I was trying to remember if this was something that was kind of a, a more common thread that was kind of coming up in the 90s. Was this like a reaction to stuff that we would get in some of the indie films like like Pulp Fiction, and, you know, you kind of bring some of that out. And so people were like, you know, trying to, you know, arbitrarily throw more of it in there because it made your film feel edgier. I don't know. But every time it was coming up, I'm like, gosh, I'm not sure if, it, I, I, I don't know. I guess I just felt like I wasn't sure if it really even needed to be in here or not. Uh, because there are times where I guess it's not so bad. I mean, it certainly starts off, you know, their relationship is formed because of this this whole racist element that is thrown in, which I think is pretty interesting. But then there's like an element when they're arguing uh, at the fountain and Samuel L. Jackson, uh, you know, is like, you were going to call me the N-word. And he's like, no, I was going to call you the A-word. And I'm just like, I mean, is that really what they were going to fight about right now? It, you know, they're trying to deal with this bomb situation. It just, I don't know. It got to a point a few times where it just felt like it was just pushing too much on it. 
It, it was, and to the point where it was sort of a lampoon of itself when he's in the in the cab right after uh, the the big you know maniacal park drive. Um, it, it, Sam Jackson's in the cab, and and a passenger gets in the back and says, "You gives him an address." He says, "No, no, no, you don't understand. I'm not. I'm not driving." And the passenger says, uh, "You are driving." And let me make it clear: I will, uh, you know, take me where I want to go, or I'll have your medallion or something, whatever that right. that's all about. Taxi lore. And uh, he says, "What? Don't you don't like white people?" And that felt so written, so forced, so, like, I demand you pay attention to our cultural issues, uh, only to be followed up by uh, a crazy drive, right? Which is which is more out of, it just felt much more out of something like Home Alone, you know, that sort of uh, kind of vaudeville caper stunt that I just, I found it really distasteful. Leading all the way up to the, the phone exchange when he's talking to the guy trying to get yeah. him off the phone and the guy i mean what is i mean he says use, something use the him. other phone bro yeah right uh, and of course the other phone doesn't have a handset on it he says bro and then he screams right uh, yeah. sam jackson screams at the the white man right he is there like leveraging the all of the the power of the stereotype of fear that uh, that you know he's that he can move this because the the move this guy because the white guy is going to be afraid of him raising his voice and that is a very real issue that needs to be discussed even today uh, and to do it in this movie in the middle of a stunt scene felt wildly out of place that one felt like it was only there to set up the kind of the uh, gomer pile cop yeah yeah who, which who was... comes in to try to stop him um and the uh, the thing that i like most about that scene is just the way zeus is ends up handling the rest of the scene like yes. hanging the phone up picking it up laying on the floor like i, I like to want to duck yeah. Yeah. yeah that's all great yeah. Uh, so anyway, it's, it's unfortunate. Um, and and you, you had a thought about homosexuality. Well, and just even even as far as that goes, it, it felt like some of it, like they were just trying to push lines in here. Like uh, Graham Greene's character, one of the other cops, Lambert, he's got a, a line like a dig in uh, in earlier in the film uh, when he's talking to McLean. And he says something about, oh, I thought you liked pansies or whatever. And I was like, what, where did that come from? Like, are they trying to make him sound like a tough New York City cop? Because it just, it comes across feeling just crass and unnecessary. And so Super I, I dated. Yeah. I think that Hensley had a better handle on McLean um, as far as not being so overtly much uh, just a, a real jerk. Um, I mean, he still is kind of the jerky McLean, but I didn't dislike him as much as I did in the second one. And again, I think it goes to the relationships that were formed here. I feel like we had something to bounce that that jerkiness off of, right? As soon as you have Samuel Jackson, who is just as much of a jerk in his own way, uh, it it softens Willis and it makes them much more of a of, of a partnership. And I I yeah. actually found it uh, much easier. He didn't stick out the way he sticks out in Die Hard Two. What we still have not had is a real kind of foundational relationship like he had with Al in the first one, somebody who was really supportive and, and very much there to help him and who could be kind of a confidant. And uh, like there was something about the relationship that was formed with Al. They even allowed for kind of that, the quiet moment for them to talk to each other and stuff. And, and it, you know, that was such a great moment. And we still haven't had a really great moment like that with McLean and anyone yet. 
but you could feel they were trying to get there in this movie, right? I mean, no, they were getting they did. there with its own in its own kind of roundabout way. It just uh, it, it just never reached the Al mood. No, it didn't. I mean, they talk about Holly and how he yeah. how he separate. I mean, there is a little bit of that, but yeah, it I never found it never it great. gets. And I, I, I found it much more of a substantive relationship in this movie uh, because they're together all the time, right? They have to actually physically interact with one another. They have to solve problems together in the same space. And that was something that I, I found I, I really would have liked to have seen with Al, in, in particularly in Die Hard 2. They, they shoehorn that little cameo in, and that was unfortunate. But here we have a, a real... It, it, we force McLean into a position to have a partner. He's worked alone, uh, and now he is—he's in a position to really stretch his, you know, both his his skill and his personality. And I thought that was really great. So we talked about the fact that the third act is has got some issues. When when does it really fall apart for you? I was I was really trying to piece it together, and I, I think okay, it it starts pushing the story into a good number of directions. We've got. There's a bomb at uh, some school in the city. And so all the cops are scattered all over the place. That's a great setup for the robbery. I really enjoy that bit. I think that's a pretty interesting way to kind of get that going. But then then McLean and Zeus have to go to this ballpark. And then it turns into this whole dump truck chase across the city and through these aqueducts. And to a boat and to Canada, I I feel like uh, everything kind of gets pulled apart when um, there's this still this bomb potentially going to blow up a school. Uh, McLean's off on his own. Zeus is off on his own, and uh, the police are trying to do their thing with the bomb. And I just feel like there's there's so many directions the story's going, and then by the time we're stuck with the whole. Uh, thing with the 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 gold in the in the dump trucks on the ship um i just feel like it's just gone too far and i'm just like i just i feel like they could not figure out a really strong um you know third act for the film and um i mean it starts in the middle of the second act but really it's the whole third act i just i really feel starts bogging down for me and all the way up through the end, I mean, by the time we get to the end with the the shootout in Canada, I'm just like, gosh, I just I feel like there's just too much stuff going on here. I, I have a real problem with the shootout in Canada. I don't that doesn't work for me either. The uh, because we're introduced to a whole new set piece, right? We've got this sort of um, you know the militant. Yeah, home base, right? <laughs> right? And and we see all, all kinds of new stuff and new soldiery and new gear and uh and it's it, it takes us into a new movie. Uh you know, and it, it it it's way too much at that point in the film. I actually have no problem with the the trucks in the tube. Uh I think the trucks in the tube is is a great set piece. I really like them getting away underground. I buy it. Uh I I even buy it I buy them, you know, dumping the water, like uh, breaking the dam and filling the tube with water. That's actually a great idea. I have a real problem with how they portray McLean getting away from it, and I have an a, a even bigger problem with McLean getting shot out of the um, the maintenance hatch. Um, and an even bigger problem still, Andy, that uh, he happens to be shot 50 feet in the air, uh, and lands in the mud right next to Zeus in the car. I, that is, uh, that's the moment for me. That is the singular <laughs> moment when things start to come off the rails. Again, uh, I am, uh, I'll, 
I'll forgive some of that getting into the third act, because then we have not just the goofy moments that are just really silly effects and stunt and, you know, kind of structural issues with some narrative problems. And I think the problems are so big, in fact, that they had to cut around, uh, do some, some weird cutting and not let us in on the central gambit, which is that they somehow switch the gold and we never see it. And there's this whole, there are two factions of militants working for Simon and, I don't know where they're split. Like I, I don't. There's no story to that that gives me any sense uh, on navigating this third act. I, I just don't get it. That's a real, real struggle I have too. Because it seems like the faction that wanted to sink the gold is two people. <laughs> Like yes, okay. Right. So only two of them actually cared about that. Then why are there uh, because like they get to Canada guys in the everybody, warehouse? Well, because everybody else is there. Right, they're right. they're all the ones who wanted the gold. So it's like so it wasn't even a faction, but you're right. It's like and that was a big question I had. It's like so wait, when when did they switch the gold? Did they ever load it on the ship or did they fake load it on the ship and the real gold because I guess the real gold drove across the border. But I, uh, like that whole setup is just is so sloppy and this is kind of the uh you know, welcome to the party pal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yep. editing struggle that we have in this film it just it's it's just such a mess and i i think it just speaks to uh, the struggle that they had trying to find the right way to end this film i mean neither hensley nor mctiernan were very happy with the way that it went i know they were trying and trying and trying to find an ending that really worked but even mctiernan says it has too much plot it's just not ripping along the way it should i think that it just it's i don't know there's just so it gets so convoluted. And I think that's why I get frustrated. Every, everybody starts getting pulled in all these different directions. And then it's up to this team to try to find a way to funnel it back into something. But by the time they do, I feel like, you know, they never, they, they did it far too late. And here I want to bring up the uh, art, the alternate ending. I know you're not crazy about it, but I actually think that the alternate ending pairs much better with the first act and a half of this film, with the Simon Says Act, uh, than uh, the ending that we got. Uh, and and the film that I want to see out of Die Hard with a Vengeance is a film that that really lets us like explore the Simon Says realm for the duration of the film. Like that's the story. That's the gambit. Make it go ahead. Make it a revenge story. And then the last six minutes is a retribution story. I actually find that really compelling. Uh, and even though I'm I'm in favor of heist stories, I think that's a whole storyline that they could dump in favor of of making this straight up revenge. So, um, you know, and, and I think you you see that Simon actually has the line when he's talking to uh, the guys that are strapped to the big bomb on the boat. And he says, you know, why do you want to kill McLean? Right. This was when Zeus is on the boat. Why do you want to kill McLean? Or, or you know, I, I can't remember the exact line, but he says um, something like perks of coincidence. Right. You know, he he just explained the central problem of his mission. <laughs> 
to kill yeah. McLean, that the entire first part of the movie, we're supposed to believe that the big weight of the narrative is on this revenge story, or is on this relationship with McLean, and it turns out that was all just buffoonery. Uh, and so I, I feel like that's a little bit of a betrayal. Well, yes and no. I mean, it's all set up in a way where it fits in context of the story, at least, because, you, okay, so you've got the first uh, the first bomb to get people's attention, and then the second thing is really just, I mean, honestly, the second thing really just could have killed McLean right there. McLean yes. could have totally died if if uh, if Zeus didn't see him and those guys just came up and just uh, killed him. I mean, that could have been the end of the whole a diehard yeah. element of the story. And then it really, I mean, I think everything else would have just gone along as planned. You know, um, I think that that he would, because I mean, we know that the subway was rigged to blow regardless of whether um, Zeus and McLean were able to get down there or not. So that would have created the hole. And mm-hmm. then the bomb in the school, that would have been a thing that would have happened. And um, that would have gotten all the cops away. So, I mean, so it all, all that still is really worked. good, right? The it, heist yeah, so, part yeah. is really good. Yeah. So so all of the heist uh, elements of the riddle, I think, still would have been able to play out, even if McLean ends ended up getting killed at any of the other points. Right, and I, I agree with that. What I'm saying is, like the movie, I, I would be absolutely okay with a movie that doesn't have all of the the heist stuff because that solves that that particular nonsense of the third act problem and the weird editing, uh, and it leads into the alternate ending, which I like. And the alternate ending is a one on one. Simon is in the uh, is in some sort of a uh, you know restaurant bar he's in a bar and he's reading newspaper yeah he's in right right serbia someplace like that and mclean finds him and we hear from mclean in their little dialogue that he's been actually fired from the force and um they play uh, a a riddle game with a uh a chinese handheld rocket launcher uh that has all the labels the you know this end is dangerous labels taken off and they end up spinning it and you know, every time they he answers a question, he lets him spin it again. And so it's like spin the bottle, but with a death machine. And uh, in the end, uh, Simon ends up shooting himself with a rocket launcher right there at a bar. And it's uh, I, I and the line, the yippee Kaye line is the last line of the movie. And I actually find that really cool. I thought <laughs> that was great. And uh, and I think it's a it's a nice cap on this character. So uh, I was in favor of it. I know you didn't like it all that much. I mean, I like it. I guess it. Uh, what it would have meant is it would have had to go through all the rest of the stuff that would have happened beforehand, which was the boat blowing up and uh, everybody thinking that um, all the gold sank. And um, uh, no, no, no. Actually, I take it back. The the boat blows up and they they um, they think that they got away with the gold because I mean they really do get away with the gold. And in this particular case. Um, I think they were just trying to blow up McLean on the boat, and then they take the gold to Canada, melt it down to make these little Empire State building statue things, and, and ship it all off so that they can break free. But everyone thinks that the bad guys all died in the explosion. Right. I think was the whole premise, right? Right, and right. So, uh, and so, I don't know. I guess it's um, having to have gone through all of that – um, only to have it end that way. I was like, ah, I don't know. I, I, I wasn't thrilled with it um, in that context. Now, if it ended up ending this way, 
Um, and you're right, if they had dropped the whole heist thing and it just kind of played it out where, you know, maybe Simon thought he'd killed uh, uh, McLean and then and gets free and then McLean catches him in the end, I think it could have worked as the alternate ending in that particular yeah. case. That's a story. There's a story in there. Yeah. Right. Uh, it it it's uh, so anyway. I I think it's worth actually looking at the alternate ending. So go check it out. It's um it, it's cool to see, and it's a nice. Uh, it, it takes us right back into the sort of um uh you know the 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 quiz game right that we're back to riddles, and that's a relationship that started at the beginning of this film. This is a coda to that narrative. It is. It ends up being sort of a a nice musical note. I I really liked it. That's that's a real problem I felt that they ended with um, in the existing ending, where they did not find any way to tie Simon Says back in. Yes. So it's, uh, yeah. The, it's like a that, different movie. the alternate ending wins. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The the last bit of nonsense, I think, where the uh, it feels like they were just chumming the water. It's it's the aspirin, right? Uh, the, the aspirin and the little that McLean notices the fine print on the the bottom of the aspirin bottle I, he's a keen keen investigator but my goodness and that they have to set up the 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 need for the aspirin bottle i mean it is constant mclean is talking about his headache and his hangover through the entire flipping film it's just like too and much what is simon is chewing aspirin through the well, entire he's, he's like film. got migraines i think yeah so. but but che- chewing aspirin andy chewing right. it that's that's so gross yeah. that's so gross i know yeah. Uh, you know what's funny about uh, this movie is that it was it was very strange watching this movie from 1995 that ended up feeling like so modern as far as politics goes. They they bring up Donald Trump at least two times in the film about Trump Tower and and you know I, I'll marry him or whatever that line was, and then they even bring up Hillary Clinton. I'm like, God, oh, this is like weird. What a weird like coincidence that this movie has <laughs> Trump and Hillary. Dick Cheney is actually in it. He's like a you know one of the uh, like the cops or an officer of some sort in the background in one of the scenes. It's like has weirdly like modern politics going on in this '90s movie. Yeah, no, I I, I wasn't <laughs> crazy about that. <laughs> it's amazing how dated and not dated that became. Yeah, I know. Um, it was so weird. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, we have stupid relationships with other agencies, police agencies. It's like movies believe that no one knows how to talk to one another as adults. Yeah, it's, it was frustrating in this one because, uh, I mean, in the other ones, I, you know, okay, it, it, they set it up where, you know, oh, this guy's a rogue cop or whatever. It, whatever, it works. In this one, it's like, what? why is there this tension? There's like, there's this nonsensical artificial tension that these other agencies have. I mean, they, they clearly know that this is Hans Gruber's brother. Why do they go through this whole rigmarole of talking with uh, McLean about it before finally giving him that information? There was no logic to that. It was so frustrating. Made no sense. No, we we already talked about the fact that this was a this was a spec script uh, from Hensley himself. Die Hard and Die Hard Two were both very successful films, and of course, because of that, they instantly wanted to do a Die Hard Three. Um, but there were a lot of scripts written, and no one was ever really happy with it because people struggle when they write a script based on a franchise trying to fit into the franchise. It just keeps feeling like a retread. One of the scripts, it was actually called Troubleshooter, had McLean fighting terrorists on a Caribbean cruise line, but they felt it was too close to under siege. 
And what's funny about that is, is one of the studios ended up actually repurposing that script to be Speed 2 Cruise Control. We all know how exciting and successful <laughs> that film was. I think that's why it worked to take Simon Says and kind of adapt it into the franchise. It felt uh, fresher. What was interesting about um, when he first wrote this as a spec script, um, it was initially set up to be a Brandon Lee vehicle, um, and Zeus would have been a, a female instead of a male. Um, Warner Brothers bought it, and they actually reworked it to be a Lethal Weapon sequel. Um, but then that went into turnaround, it got shelled, and 20th Century Fox bought it, and that's when it started turning into Die Hard 3. But it's funny how um, uh, even when it first was Die Hard 3, it was not this this direct sequel to the first one. It really was just about this guy who was toying with McLean throughout. And it was, uh, they were trying to come up with a reason, like, why is this guy toying with McLean so much? And it was uh, somewhere in there, they finally hit on the idea of it being Simon Hans's brother and this whole vengeance story that they really latched onto. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I, I think that that actually made for an, a, a nice connection back to the first one, even if maybe they didn't need to do the terrorists are actually just robbers idea yeah. again although uh, to to his credit uh, mcturnan did bring back uh john mcclain's undershirt <laughs> and it, it starts yeah, out clean exactly and gets one. really dirty again so funny let's do the deep scene dive andy let's do it or the deep sequence dive once again uh this is a long one it is 90 blocks in 30 minutes this is uh, this is a, a sequence of some renown in this movie the, uh, john mcclain and Samuel L. Jackson are given a task by Simon to uh, get uh, way, way, way uptown, 90 blocks, and they only have 30 minutes to do it in heavy midday traffic. And so Bruce Willis, uh, he takes a cab from uh, a local cab driver, and they get in it and they drive straight up the middle of Central Park. And that is our sequence. Yes, and it goes right up to the point where they they separate because uh, McLean decides he's going to jump on the subway train and he's going to have Zeus drive down and meet him. Yeah. So why why is this scene important? Well, I think we were looking at um, what McTiernan brings to the table as far as an action director uh, paired with kind of the, the buddy nature of the story we have here. What I found so interesting about uh, watching this uh, sequence a number of times is it is really fascinating to me how the camera work is fairly patient throughout the film. Um, I mean, we see that like right right out of the gate after the initial explosion. You got this great shot in the police department. It's like this single shot, and the way that they 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 handle the camera is very nice and smooth, right up to the um, uh, the reaction of the lieutenant as as he's on the phone and and talks to Simon, who says Simon says. And but in this sequence, like I was watching it, and this you know, normally if or I shouldn't say normally, but if you were watching this from a director like Michael Bay or Tony Scott, they would have been cutting, cutting, cutting constantly everywhere as this cab was careening through the park. Um, it, watching the way that McTiernan handled the camera 
was like, he has some really, I mean, long shots. I mean, long in context of an action sequence, but still, I mean, they're fairly long. You see the, the, the car ripping through the park and we're actually, the camera's mounted on another vehicle that's pacing it. And so as the car is weaving through trees and, and, and people are dodging and everything, we're with it for like, you know, five seconds at a time. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite interesting to see how he can still build a tense action sequence. Um, but not through the cutting, but through the action on screen. You know, it was funny. I was thinking about music. You know, some of the most, when you're writing music uh, uh, and you are scoring and then putting lyrics to your music, some of the most interesting music and the most interesting patterns come when you take long notes uh, in the the music itself paired with uh, shorter, more staccato lyrics, right? So you're pairing um, slow with fast, slow with fast, slow with fast. And it's, that's when you end up, and you can, you shake that up and long, you know, short notes, staccato notes become longer uh, held uh, bits of, of lyric. And I was thinking about that in this sequence because we have just that we have the music is moving we have a lot of action that is moving very very quickly but it's paired with as you say a very patient editing style and that's i find that really interesting and super energizing because i feel much more like i'm there i don't have to um feel like i'm you know michael bay turning my head constantly to to readjust and figure out where i am i am in that pace car next to the cab i'm in the cab i'm in the dash of the cab and i'm you know, flinging the car through the air into the dirt. I, I am right with it, and I feel like I never lose place, and yet I never lose a sense that this is an action sequence. It it looks crazy, but it's patient enough that it allows me to see just how crazy it is. They handle it very nicely. Um, I was really impressed with that. You did mention the music. Um, I actually think the music through this sequence is some of the worst music that Michael Kamen has written for the franchise so far. It is like this. Eric Sarah sort of style that he would have written. Like it was like Goldeneye, like bad chase music that Eric Sarah did in Goldeneye. It's it's terrible. It's just like I don't know, it's like little uh drumbeat sort of thing. It's like there's no action tension in the music. It was really a disappointing um, bit. Um, I no, I agree with you. I would compare it more to the Big Blue. I mean, it was it, it, some of the and, and in the Big Blue, Eric Sarah's score actually fits better. But it was that it, it is a little bit uh, uh, circus like. We don't hear it like the first half of the sequence. There isn't any music. It sort of comes up in the middle, and unfortunately, doesn't go away. Another incredibly. Um, uh, amazing thing to point out here is just some of the stunt driving going on with the uh, the cab through the park. I mean, obviously, when it's wide shots and stuff, it's stunt drivers driving it. But they actually designed this rig, um, whereas like the front half of a cab, the back half of a, I don't know, some sort of a truck or something. And the, the stunt driver was actually on the back half um, driving this rig. Um, and that way, the camera people could actually uh, still film Bruce Willis, like, feigning driving. And what that allowed for is some some great moments where it looks like Bruce Willis is doing some really incredible driving on his own. Um, and for, a, like, a 90s action film, I was, it was really quite impressive. The one that really st- struck me for some reason is right at the end when he... Um, he comes up with the idea that he's got to get on the train and he's, he flips the car around and then we're in the back seat watching him as he kind of 
kind of finishes his turn and comes careening right up to a curb, like, you know, a couple feet away from some people or something, and then hops out. And you see that it's Bruce Willis, who's like, you know, kind of turning and, and screeching and hopping out. And it's like, that's really impressive for Bruce Willis to be doing. And I'm like, oh, but the way that they designed this car, it was, it was just amazing that, uh, that it worked so incredibly. I never question it in the movie. I never question how they do the driving. It always looks like they're behind the wheel. It always looks like the car is in space. Like there, there is no projections, right? I mean, they're all there. Uh, I thought it was really great. And the jump that the car does at the end, um, as it as it jumps over the rock um, onto the yeah. road, like that actually looks like something that would actually happen if a car did that. Um, you know, the people are dodging the way that it's scraping on things. Everything looked so good which made me so disappointed later in the film when he drives the car off the bridge and to chase the dump trucks, because that looks like a car on wires floating down to the road. And it was, it was so absurd. And it's like, you guys did such amazing work earlier. Why do we have to do this stupid stunt now to make it, you know, to pretend that it actually can do this. It was just nonsense later. Uh, it was like, it was a different team. That's what it felt like. It's just different yeah. people. Um, so that was unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, camera, we've already talked about Peter Menzies Jr. and the uh, editing by John Wright yes. uh, on this film. And we should strong. point out that uh, that the cab driver that they take the uh, cab from is actually Asif Manvi. Asif Manvi <laughs> of the Daily Show fame. Just pop it in there. And he's wearing shorts. Very funny. What are you doing in my cab? It sounds just like him. <laughs> Jonathan Ensley's uh, IMDb bio says, says that he's one of the most prolific screenwriters in the action-adventure genre. Jonathan started his career writing episodes of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles for George Lucas on ABC. I'm just glad to know that eight produced titles is one of the most prolific, even though one of them is Armageddon. Come on. Come on. <laughs> I, I will say of his uh, of his filmography of the films he has written, uh, I actually uh, enjoyed. <laughs> okay, I have as a guilty pleasure the Saint. I enjoyed Jumanji, uh, and of course there there uh, this film up until when it's you know when it has to be forgiven for stuff. I actually like this one. I could I could even go so far as to say that next is a bit of a guilty pleasure. That doesn't surprise me at I all. I know. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I mean, it's he's he's an interesting writer. I I feel like he um, I mean he really pushes himself as like you know an R-rated action action writer. I mean that's that's really kind of how he um, builds himself and sees himself. And listening to him talking on the commentary. It, he came across like the guy who is is always happy to give himself an excuse for being over the top and coming up with stuff like Bruce Willis shooting out of the pipe with the water. You know, his his comment was, it's the movies, people. And I'm just like, you know what? There's a time and a place where I can buy into that. But as a writer, I feel like you know, find a way to make it work a little better, you know, it, it, it shouldn't have, you shouldn't have to be, you know, excusing it. I, I totally agree. It's just, it feels like unfinished thought. Uh, John McTiernan, uh, he delivers a fantastic open and I love how quickly the title card drops. That's 
awesome into that that great montage. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, the 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 titles play great, and then it's it's a great opening. We've got uh, "Summer in the City" playing, which is just a great song to kick us off with. Um, and definitely sets a tone for a non-Christmas Die Hard movie. We should mention. Um, that's a great. That's a great yeah. point. <laughs> um, and then it goes into um, uh, this like montage of the city before uh, we have this huge explosion rip across uh, the road as as a, a building kind of gets blown up, um, all within a minute of of the opening credits. It was just an exhilarating way to kick off this film, and I was I was so excited. Um, I, again, this just goes to um, uh, to show like how strong this script was um, for the first half of the film, and I, I was really glad to see John McTiernan back. I felt like he had a very assured hand. He's a director who um, knows how to uh, to kind of like I mean we just talked about it with the deep scene dive, but he knows how to kind of build an action film without being um, overly excessive. And I, I think it shows right from the start. They also, he also does a fantastic job of giving us a sense of place. Yes, that's right. At the explosion, right at the beginning, you'll notice that a, a truck gets taken out by the explosion and it is an Atlantic courier truck. Uh, people who are uh, sharp eyed and remembering from the first film will remember that the matching truck over in the first film is a Pacific courier truck. So I thought that was so, a fantastic little tie in. If you didn't know that you were on the East Coast by New York City, this would actually lock that in for you. Better than the uh, Pacific Bell phones in the right. <laughs> Dulles right, Airport. Right. right oh right. well. <laughs> uh, other cast. We've already uh, given a nod to Graham Greene, and we just just uh, uh, talked about him. You guys at least just talked about him. Right, in Molly's game. He, he's he's always great. Yeah. Sam Phillips shows up. Sam Phillips. She plays Katya, the the lone female terrorist. What's interesting about Sam Phillips is that she's not really an actress. She was brought in just because they liked her look. They liked that she had kind of this Marlena Dietrich sort of look. And uh, I think she works well as as unsure as I was of her because she goes through this, you know, strange psychopathic knife thing. <laughs> you know, that, that was, yeah, that's that kind, kind of crazy. happens. Yeah, it happens. And then that was the end of it. I'm like, that was really kind of a weird thing. Whatever. What's interesting about Sam Phillips, though, is she's actually largely a, just a singer. That was kind of her career. She started as a Christian singer. Um, I think she kind of got a little um, disillusioned by uh, the Christian music industry and ended up getting married to T-Bone Burnett. Um, and uh, she's still writing albums and stuff. And she ended up uh, composing all the music for Gilmore Girls. Yeah, which is has some kind of iconic music. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Just saying. Not that I not that I could sing it for you right now. Not that I know anything about <laughs> Rory and wonder what she's up to right now. And, oh, Lorelai. Uh-huh. Gosh, Lane. How's Lane? And Suki. <laughs> Suki. Oh. Oh. Suki ah, St. James. Good times, indeed. Some of my favorite Sean Gunn work was in uh, Gilmore Girls. Oh, yes. Yeah. He was great, man. Oh, dear. Okay. So, uh, they, we also have a, a couple. In addition to the geyser f- uh, thing that we have going on, there is there is another rather glaring 
uh, a defiance of physics, and that is involving the gold. Quite a bit, yes. I, it's funny because um, uh, the script, uh, the way that scripts work is uh, when you're writing like a, a big heist sort of thing like this in the city of New York, I guess you actually have to show it to the police department. They have to approve it. Um, when when Hensley's script went through, he actually got a call from the FBI because they were so concerned that he knew so much about the Federal Reserve and about how the subway is close to it and about the aqueducts and everything. And he's just like, I got all this from the people, the Federal Reserve and, you know, articles in the newspaper and all this stuff. And they actually, you know, he they they said, well, okay, well, I guess we obviously need to redesign the structure of our of our bank because it actually could happen, which I think was pretty <laughs> funny that he was uh, so on the ball to come up with this whole heist concept. But what they really screwed up on is the fact that in order to actually steal all the gold from the Federal Reserve in New York, they actually would have needed 480 dump trucks to take it all away. <laughs> So, and they had they had fourteen. Fourteen. They were gonna make it. They're gonna make another trip. <laughs> it was just right. It's it's an out and back. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, how'd this do in uh, award season, Andy? Did did it uh, did it rake it in? Well, like the past film, it wasn't exactly an a, a kind of the big award thing. Although interestingly, it did get a Saturn Award for best action adventure film. It lost to the Usual Suspects, uh, now starring Christopher Plummer. Um, it also did get an MTV. <laughs> this is going to go on forever. You realize it's a, it sh- as it should. <laughs> as it, should. Uh, it did get an MTV Movie Award nomination for Best Action Sequence for the maniacal drive through New York City's subway station and derailment. Lost to Braveheart for the Battle of Sterling. The wins were kind of like um, last week's, where Michael Kamen he again won the BMI Film Music Award along with all the other twelve nominees. If you nominated, you're a winner. Same thing with the German Golden Screen Awards, where it was uh, it won for uh, it didn't say what I'm assuming best film. All the other films won also. It did. You know, the other two movies came from books. This one landed as a book eventually. From what I read about, um, it sounded actually kind of interesting, and I, I'm actually curious to read it now. Uh, it sounds a little darker. They do a lot more exploring of Mac- McLean's psyche. Um, kind of how he's kind of gotten angry and broken since Holly uh, and he separated kind of the alcoholism. Likewise, you get a little more of Zeus's backstory about why he hates white people, um, why he's looking after his nephews. I guess his brother was killed during a drug raid. And so it's, you know, it sounds like um, there might be some interesting additions to it. Plus, it also uh, ends with the uh, alternate ending. So you'd be happy with that. I am happy with that. I am mostly curious how they get us to that alternate ending. So I'm I'm actually going to check it out uh, with my next uh, uh, audible audiobook credit. Uh, and you know what? You can actually do the same thing. Look, sponsor alert. Uh, Audible as a sponsor of this very show. If you head over to audibletrial.com slash the next reel, search for Die Hard with a Vengeance under the uh, audiobook section uh, there, and you will find it. And it's it's pretty cheap. It's like five bucks, but you don't even need to worry because you can get it for free. Uh, and then you can check it out. It's by Deborah Scheel, uh, narrated by David Aykroyd. You can't get it on Kindle. You can only get it on paperback. It's unavailable right now. But you can get it on audiobook at audibletrial.com slash the next reel. Look at Fantastic. that. That was so smooth. It's like we planned it. 
Andy, uh, please, sir, run the numbers. What's great about this franchise is that we really get to see the explosion of the size of budget for summer tentpole action picks. I think that's uh, it's pretty interesting. Uh, for John McTiernan's return to the franchise he started, he got $90 million, or $142.2 million in today's dollars, more than three times the budget he got for his first go-around. The movie opened wide on May 19, 1995, opposite the rom-com Forget Paris. It opened in the number one slot, but only held it for a week when Casper bounced it to number two the following week. Still, the movie did go on to make $100 million domestically and $266 million internationally for a grand total of $578.4 million in today's dollars, becoming the highest grossing film of the worldwide box office that year. Interestingly, since 20th Century Fox was hesitant to actually pony up the entire budget, Independent production company Synergy came in with the finishing funds and retained all international rights. The movie's success was great for both of them, but Synergy ended up banking more money on it than Fox. Gotta love the numbers game. Die Hard with a Vengeance ended up the second highest grossing film domestically of 1995, uh, just behind uh, uh, Christopher Plummer's Seven. (laughs) Like the sequel that came before it, Die Hard with a Vengeance, did prove that it is a franchise that can last, as it made an adjusted profit per finished minute of $3.4 million, beating out the previous two. McLean is a box office tank. <laughs> I was totally going to jump in there with a Christopher Plummer gag now, but you were already on it. That was so good. <laughs> well, Andy, I got to tell you, I, I still... we. <sighs> There's some stuff in here in the end that's that's pretty stupid, and uh, yet I still forgive it because I love what it's intending to do. I have a lot of fun uh, with the Simon Says uh, narrative, and I want to see, you know, even though I'm I'm left longing, I do want to see more of that. I enjoyed the look of the film. I felt it 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 it's doesn't look dated. It it as you say, you know, even even with the Trump and Hillary mentions and the uh, uh, Dick Cheney guest spot. Uh, it it's it looks pretty darn contemporary, and and the action holds up. Yeah, there are a few um, bits of uh, some rough uh, compositing uh, from the era that that toward the end that I struggle with a little bit, but I just take that with a grain of salt because it was from '95. Um, on the whole, you're right. I think they do a great job um, putting the film together. And yes, I also still have a lot of fun with this film, even though I do get bogged down in the second half and really in that last act. But it is a fun film and it does get me pumped for the next one. We're going to have to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see our stack ranking of all the films we've talked about on this show. But really swipe over in the show notes. You'll be able to tap on the word flickchart. And it will take you straight to this film, which is flickchart.com slash movie slash C6DA5B538D. Wow. Go there. Or just use the show notes. Either I'm one, going there care. right now. <laughs> you should. C6DA5B538D. That's also my password. Mine is 12345. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, right. please rank this movie. <laughs> First up, we have Die Hard with a Vengeance, or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh, man. Uh, Oh Brother for me, though. Yeah, it's Oh Brother. Die Hard with a Vengeance, or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen? Uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Yeah, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Die Hard with a Vengeance or Gremlins? Gremlins for me. Yeah, Gremlins. Die Hard with a Vengeance or Star Trek III, The Search for Spock? Jeez, I'm leaning Die Hard. Hmm. Yeah, me too. All right. Die Hard with a Vengeance or A Fistful of Dollars? 
I'll take a fistful of dollars, please. Fistful of dollars. Die Hard with a Vengeance or Moon? Uh, you're saying Moon? Yeah. Uh, it, and actually, in Moon, Christopher Plummer does the voice of the robot, I believe. <laughs> I, I'm going <laughs> to... While he's chewing aspirin. <laughs> uh, moon for me. Uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance or Run, Lola, Run? Run, Lola, Run. This could actually be called Run, Run McLean, Run. <laughs> It's a it's a simple joke, Andy, but you nailed it. <laughs> uh, uh, run, Lola, run for me. You said run, Lola, run, right? I did. Sorry, I was too busy coming up with my joke. <laughs> uh, die Hard with a Vengeance or The Thin Man? I'm going to go with Die Hard with a Vengeance. Yeah, I think Die Hard with a Vengeance. That leaves it at 227 out of 333. I, I, I don't know. What do you think about that? Is that too high? Too Interestingly, low? it is two slots above Die Hard 2. Wow. I feel like it should be higher than that. I, Cursed uh, oh brother thing, man. I, you know, I, don't, I don't have a problem. I mean, it could have gone higher. It's just it kept losing to other things. So I'm, I'm okay <laughs> wait, with... Wait, wait, What is this complicated mechanic that you're describing? <laughs> <laughs> it could have won, but it lost. <laughs> it's, it's science, Pete. I can't get into the complexities was, of it. I was never good at science. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just saying, on mine, uh, it landed at 267, uh, and that puts it right at uh, three and a half stars, and I'm going to stick with that on letterbox.com slash the next reel. Where, where are you? I'm at 898 out of 3910, which puts it at 77%, um, but I am I'm so torn with this one if, it's, if I'm giving it a three or a three and a half. I feel like I'm going to give it a three and a half because I think it's got such a strong start. I think you are too. And that makes math simple. Three and a half and a like for both of us. Three and a half and a like for both of us. All right. So where do we go from here, Andy? Well, we are taking a 12-year jump. That's right. It's a, a big old hop to uh, to the next in the chain of McLean films. We're going to be going all the way to 2007's Live Free or Die Hard. I haven't seen this movie in uh, some time. Oh, but interesting. It is, it is ranked pretty high on my flick chart. Higher than I uh, would have expected it. So I look forward to a re-rank uh, to see how, this, see how this works. Makes me a little nervous. This is the one... I watch um, most frequently right after the first one. Really? Really? Yes. yes. Like as a guilty pleasure or because you actually enjoy it? No. Well, I mean, <laughs> that would that would hold true either way, wouldn't it? <laughs> would it be because it's a guilty pleasure or because Andy, it's actually good? <laughs> Andy, I, I don't know if you you were up with that. This is also science. Oh, that's why. Okay. You just okay. Have, you, yeah, you just gotcha, have to keep gotcha. up. Uh, no, mm-hmm. I, I actually genuinely really enjoy it. Oh, man. Well, then I'm very excited uh, to watch this one again. And uh, I hope everybody else is excited to watch this one again. And uh, yeah, I feel like these later Die Hard movies, every time I tell people that we're doing Die Hard, they always come back with the same thing. Oh, well, they just went downhill from the first one. I'm not finding that yet. So here we go. Live free or die hard. And when the movie ends, our conversation begins.
Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. <laughs> it, it's a rich tapestry uh, this week. Oh. Uh, a, a reflection of culture and race and uh, and a commentary on business. I'm excited about this this, this week. This is good stuff. Um, would, <laughs> forgive me, I'm going to cut in line and go first. Go for it. Okay. <laughs> Mine comes from That's Life on June 1st, 2014, with a one-star review titled Dumb Formula Nothingness. Did you ever see the Monty Python sketch where a dithering movie exec comes up with one idea after another, but all the yes-men around him just lavish praise on it all? I imagine Hollywood is the same, and this movie proves it. It is improbable, if not downright impossible. Nothing is believable, and it is absurd to imagine that two ragamuffin individuals are going to succeed in bringing bad guys to justice while the entire police force of New York City, plus the FBI and CIA, only fail. What the writers think was clever, I can only call pathetic. I give them I give them a gold star for using the word ragamuffin. I actually I, that is a high point of this particular review, <laughs> and thankfully, uh, uh, Sloppy D responds and says, uh, "So I, I take it you didn't like the first one, where Hans plays the FBI and LAPD like a fiddle, only to eventually be brought down by one guy in a wife beater with no shoes." <laughs> so, all right. Well, I've got a one star by the cleverly named Roos Billis, <laughs> who says, "What's up with McLean's hairline?" How many times is John McClane going to die? At this point, I just feel bad for him. How hard must John McClane die before he decides to stay dead? Also, does his hairline move back every time he comes back to life? I couldn't take the plot seriously when there was obviously a bigger issue at hand. Something needs to be done about John McClane's hairline before it recedes any further, or even worse, he just might go bald. I give three stars because I liked Morgan Freeman's acting. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> and there it is. I'm trying to hold it in. I'm trying to hold it in on mute. <laughs> oh, Roos, I like Morgan Freeman's acting, too. <laughs> oh. Ah, uh, he was oh so good in Die Hard, Miss Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he was uh, the cab driver. I'm uh. sure he was. <laughs> oh God, that was so good. Oh. You know, interesting. He's he also reviewed Die Hard two and Die Hard. Uh, he gave Die Hard a two star. Mm. He gave Die Hard two Die Harder a two star. Dire with mentioned one star, but live free or die hard is a four star. Does it reference the hair? He does. He's lost all of his hair from dying. (laughs) This is actually really funny. All those times John McClane has come back from the dead have taken a heavy toll on his body. He has lost all of his hair from dying hard too many times. For the record, (laughs) I would like to note that I never actually watched this movie and only saw the trailer. (laughs) I cringe deep inside every time I see that bald-headed John McClane. Four stars for devotion to dying hard every time. Oh my god, that is hilarious. That is awesome. Gosh, how do we miss that for uh the first two? I don't know. Are I want to see hang on. Uh 
I thought it was a Christmas movie, he says. There, was a, there I was, browsing through Christmas movie section at Blockbuster, R.I.P., with my two sons, age 7 and 10. This movie stood out to me. I wondered, why is this movie in the Christmas section when, uh, when the cover depicts Bruce Willis holding a gun in front of an exploding building? <laughs> my curiosity got the better of me, and I decided to watch this movie with my two sons on Christmas Eve. Biggest mistake of my life. There was much glass blowing up in this movie, and Bruce Willis just happened to be shoeless through 95% of it, even though... Though I knew it was fake glass and blood in his feet, my kids didn't, and to this day, my youngest son still sees a psychiatrist every week to talk about what he witnessed. My other son dropped out of school and became a drug addict who abuses heroin just to forget that what he witnessed that day. Oh <laughs> Give it God. two stars because I like the classical music that was playing in the beginning. If anyone can tell me the name of that song, that would be great. That is so funny. Wait, I haven't done Die Hard 2 yet, Andy. Don't hang up yet. I'm waiting. One does not simply die harder, says Roos Billis. I never finished watching the first movie because my kids did not like it, to put it mildly. I assumed from the title Die Hard that eventually he died at the end of the movie. I'm assuming that the way he died in the first movie was not extreme enough, so he came back to life to (laughs) die harder. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, but I didn't really watch the movie. I gave it two stars because that's the rating I gave the first movie, and because this movie is number two. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, wow. man. Oh, Roos. Oh, Roos. Billis, for the win. That's hilarious. Uh, I, I guess on behalf of <laughs> dumb Hollywood movie execs and Morgan Freeman, uh, thanks, Amazon. Christopher Plummer did it in seven. <laughs> I said Christopher Plummer did it in seven. <laughs> now did you get my joke? <laughs> what are you referring to? What am I not getting? The movie Seven. Do you remember I saw the movie it. Seven we I talked love about the movie with David seven. Fincher? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I've seen it many was, times. Was Christopher Plummer in it? <laughs> no. And who is Oh my god. Well, to be fair, uh, Andy, that's what you call a way homer. To, to, you only get it on the <laughs> way, way home. home. To be fair, Andy, he wasn't credited. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today. 